John chapter 14 this morning. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. May the Lord add His blessing to the Word. You may be seated. Dr. R.C. Sproul opens his commentary on John 14 by citing recent polls that asked professing Christians to identify their favorite chapter of the Bible. Two chapters seem to vie for top spot. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, and John chapter 14 because of the comfort it affords to the reader. This is what we're going to deal with this morning, this great comforting words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we pointed out before, and I, and I want to emphasize this again, the chapter and verse divisions are of late edition and are often seemingly arbitrary. We don't really understand why they uh, chose this particular place to, to establish uh, this chapter division. So, and again, let me really remind you, when you're reading Scripture, be careful that when you come to chapter divisions, do not uh, just accept the fact that this chapter division is now going to suddenly launch you into some new uh, discussion altogether. It does not. And that we see that here very clearly because Christ's final discourse with his disciples actually began back in chapter 13, verse 31. When Judas Iscariot had received the sop at Jesus' hand and he left the room. Now Jesus turns to the eleven that were remaining there, his own, and begins to teach them. And he will teach them 
this final discourse, which lasts through chapters 14, 15, 16, and closes with chapter 17, his famous high priestly prayer. And we need to see that. And that, and but the first section of it, and this is what we're dealing with this morning, actually ends with verse number fourteen of of uh, this fourteenth chapter. And notice what it says there. Uh, excuse me, verse thirty-one, which says, "Arise, let us go from here. Rise, let us go from here." Here's, here's what I believe is happening. Jesus was ready to leave the upper room now and to travel to Jerusalem. So he gives, he gives the 14th chapter part of this final discourse beginning with verse 31 and it runs clear through chapter 14 to the end. That's the first part of it. At which he says to the disciples, Arise, let us go from here. Now what does that mean? He's ready to leave the upper room and to travel from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount Olivet, which was east of Jerusalem. The final discourse continues, as I pointed out already, through chapters 15, 16, and then the high priestly prayer. So these final parts of the discourse were given as he was traveling out of Jerusalem. So they're going through the streets of Jerusalem, and he's talking to them as they're traveling, and they're going to the brook Kidron. They'll cross over the brook Kidron, go up onto the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I believe the 18th chapter supports this. If you'll turn to chapter 18 and verse number 1, where it reads, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. When he went out means he left the city of Jerusalem. He crossed over the brook Kidron. So he's gone out of this of Jerusalem. And he is now on to Mount, uh, uh, the Mount of Olives. So when he had spoken these words, he went out, his disciples, across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane there on Mount Olivet, which he and his disciples entered. It's interesting, John does not even cover his uh, uh, time in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not at all. But what, what it does interest me is how some commentators try to argue that there's a discrepancy here between chapter 14, verse 31, where he says, Arise and let us go out. And, there, and they spend volumes of material trying to explain that away. I, mean, it's, I think it's very simple. <laughs> There's no conflict between chapter 14, verse 31, and chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, so some have suggested that uh, while he said, rise, let us go, there in 1431, they they do what is some, so typical sometimes of us, would say, okay, let's get going, and then we start a conversation, and we don't go until uh, later on after we finished our conversation. So some have suggested then that that uh, they that when Jesus said arise let us go they really didn't go they stayed in the upper room until uh, after the high priestly prayer and 
I I just I don't find that uh, find that at all. It's very simple. He said, "Rise, let us go." They walked down through the streets of Jerusalem while he gave the uh, chapters fifteen and sixteen. Had his high priestly prayer still within the confines of the city of Jerusalem, and then chapter eighteen tells us that he finished his words. They crossed the Jordan, went up into the Mount of Olives, and that was that. Well, now let's proceed then. Thus, the first part of this upper room discourse was given to comfort the hearts of his faithful disciples. Why? He's telling them, he's been telling them that he's going to be crucified. He's telling them that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be mistreated. He's going to be crucified and then rise again. They haven't been listening to him. They don't listen to him. Why? Because they are under the impression that he is the Messiah and that as Messiah, he is going to overthrow the Romans and reestablish David's throne in Jerusalem and they're going to sit with him in the kingdom. They even asked, can we sit at your right hand and on your left? Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm to drink? And then he told him, you will. You're going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. But to seat you on my left and my right is not mine to give. That's the Heavenly Father's prerogative. But so now in the supper, he's also informed them that one of you is going to betray me. Well, who is it? Is it I? And they're wondering, and then he gets when he gets into the disc, to the his final discourse itself there when he says a new commandment I'm going to give you that you love one another. And then he said I'm going away and where I'm going you cannot come. And Peter expresses their all of a sudden their shock and their concern. Where are you going? And why can't I follow you? There in verses 36 and 37. You see, here's the problem. Because now this information is starting to, to, to come home to them. Jesus really is going to leave them. And they can't go with him now. Peter's faith is about to be completely shattered. Their understandings were awakened. Their self-confidence is shaken. Instead of messianic triumph and kingdom restoration, which they expected, the disciples are fast realizing that their world is heading to catastrophic failure. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to leave them. And what were they to do? And I believe that's why chapter 14 begins with these very comforting words treasured by saints in every generation. Let not your hearts be troubled. Even in Jesus' final hour, and this to me is, a, is an amazing truth, in, in his very final hour, as he faced the cross, as he faced rejection, as he faced suffering, as he faced the Father's wrath on him, 
he left us an example of selfless service in the will of God. These, his final discourse isn't for himself. See, due to the nature of what he was about to suffer, wouldn't it have been norm, uh, the normal human response? And I think very appropriately so for Jesus to have sought emotional and spiritual support for himself? Guys, gather around me and pray with me. And hold me a little bit. But he doesn't. Instead, he forgot himself and he focused on his own followers, giving them comfort and support at the same time. And I think this is also important. He needed to expose and correct their sinful unbelief. So I have two points here in the message that I want to share. First is the admonition to counter troubled hearts. At issue here is troubled hearts. What is a troubled heart? It's, Lord, what's happening? What can we expect? That's uncertainty, this anxiety, this fear that they have now possessed. Growing fear and uncertainty due to, to Christ's revelation of his impending death at the hands of the Jews. And the source of their distress is clearly given by John. And this, uh, again, right, raises somewhat of an issue. In uh, chapter 13, verse 21, John informed us that Jesus himself was troubled. Is it wrong to have a troubled heart? See, this is the issue. Well, we find this, this word troubled applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in three times right here in the same in the same context. Jesus, uh, for example, we read there in uh, chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, And when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who, who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, in his spirit and greatly troubled. Then in chapter 12, verse 27, he said, Now is my soul troubled. When he realized his hour had come, the hour is here. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then in chapter 13 and verse 21, we read, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So by these examples, however, we must understand that it is not a sin to have a troubled heart. The question is, why would Jesus admonish his followers then not to be troubled? And I believe the answer is this. When Jesus revealed his betrayer to his disciples, and they also being greatly troubled, 
It says, And they were sorrowful and began to say one to another, Lord, is it I? There, Matthew chapter 26, verse 22. This revelation then was compounded by his word of departure. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter expressed what all felt and, and sought to assure, reassure Jesus of their own loyalty when he said to them, Lord, I will, I'll go even to the death with you. Imagine then the shock that Peter experienced on hearing that he would deny Jesus that very night. Before Peter, I'm telling you, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Not just once, three times. That must have shook him. Jesus' troubled heart was not a consequence of fear. That's another important point. But his response, his was a response to the unbelief and the hardness of heart that he saw in those that were around him. You know, this is, here's an important truth. We need to read Jesus carefully and understand what page he's on because we often assume things because we have a different agenda. We want to read our agenda into Jesus' words. And that often creates a real problem. And when we read our agenda into Jesus' words, he's troubled <laughs> with us. He knew sovereignly what God was doing and how his will would be carried out in their circumstances. He also was distressed by the failure of people to respond in a godly way to what they did not understand. Boy, things happen to us and we just go all to pieces. Well, what is that going to happen to me? I don't understand. Do you believe God's sovereign? Do you believe all things are under his control? Nothing takes us by God's by surprise for God. Nothing. See, the wrath. He was about to suffer abuse, rejection, and crucifixion. The worst of which was the wrath of God being poured out upon him without measure. And I agree with Ron on that. His suffering in the garden had nothing to do with his own personal suffering. It had to do with his separation from God. The first time in all eternity that the Father and the Son were separated. And Jesus facing that, yet faced it with absolute determination to follow through with it in obedience to the Father's will. He knew that he would suffer the wrath of God without measure, but he also knew that he would be raised again and be seated at the Father's right hand and would reign in the heavenlies forever. 
but he also knew the tragic consequences of those who would reject him. So as Jesus faced his final hour, and knowing that his glorious end was at hand, he obedient he was obediently submissive, submissive to the will of God. What shall I say then, Father, save me from this hour? Ah, but for this purpose I have come into this hour. Chapter 12, verse 27. And in this very distressful hour, he would not forsake his own whom he called to follow him. This is a powerful truth. He proceeded to comfort them and to inform them of what lay before them. And in their fear and anxiety, he lovingly exhorted them, let not your hearts be troubled. The heart here is a reference to the entire person, to, the, to mind, emotion, and will. It's the seed of our being, the very core of our life. We are commanded to guard it carefully. We read in Proverbs 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, I even wonder if it's possible that Jesus had this verse in mind when back in chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 38, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's our life. So his being troubled was not so much for himself as it was for his disciples and his concern was to allay their fears, their confusion, their disappointment and distress. And it, is it any wonder then that, this, that we have this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled, that is so often read at funerals and so been found to be so comforting. That brings us to the second point, the promise to counter this troubled heart. Don't let your hearts be troubled because I've got the solution, Jesus said. You don't need to let your hearts be troubled. I have the solution. And here it is. Full trust in God and Christ. You believe in God, believe in me also. That's an interesting sentence right there. It's a very short sentence. And uh, and it expresses to uh, us that we need to fully trust Him. But here's the... I want to dig a little deeper into this with the Greek language. And uh, I know uh, that uh, this may be a little complicated, but let me give it to you anyway. In the Greek language, this admonition here in its grammatical form is hard to understand because both the indicative mood and the imperative moods in the present tense are the same. Indicative mode just simply is a statement of fact. Trust in God. The imperative mode is a command. Trust in God. <laughs> One is a command, the other is just a statement. So how do you know the difference? So there, there really are four possibilities. We've got the the uh, verb believe twice. Believe in God, believe also in me. So these two could could read like this. One is the indicative mode, the other is indicative. You, you do believe in God, believe also in me. See, it would, you, you do trust in God, you also trust in me. 
By the way, believe here, I believe the word believe means to trust. In fact, I think that it would be, I, I personally would, would rather the translation be that. Trust in me. You trust in God? Trust also in me. Or they could be indicative imperative, which would be, you are trusting in, in God. Now, you must trust in me. Or it could be imperative imperative, which would, which would uh, yield uh, trust in God, trust in me. Or, or fourthly, the imperative imperative indicative mode. Trust in God like you trust in me. So which is it? Well, that's kind of a toss-up. Personally believe this uh, possibility, the third possibility. He's telling them. He's commanding them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. How do you not let your heart be troubled? Trust in God and trust in me also. The most important thing of this phrase it clearly links Jesus and God as appropriate objects of faith. Do you understand that? Jesus is not less than God. He is God. And here he is clearly telling us that he is God. Because just as we trust in God, we trust in him. There's no difference. Jesus asks for the same trust that one would expect of God. And if Jesus is not God, then he's blaspheming. Here's another proof of his deity. So now, that takes us to the troubled heart itself. Who not, and what the, the problem here with many of us is the, the trust, the, a troubled heart in one who is naturally self-focused. That, because we're sinners. Self is the thing that rides uh, in our hearts the most. So being self-focused, it's more likely than not to be sinful because it reveals unbelief in us. We want to trust ourselves. We want to figure it out for ourselves what we will do, how we will proceed. We believe that we are sufficient unto ourselves to accomplish all everything. So when we're brought up against a brick wall, whoa, everything falls apart. And that's the problem. A troubled heart is not necessarily a sinful heart when it's not centered on self. When you're troubled for somebody else, when, you're, when you feel concerned for another, that's not, that's not sinful. When it's not centered on self, such as Jesus experienced, but if the disciples would refuse to trust in the Lord, they would be sinning. That's the problem. They would remain in their anxiety, live a life of fear and frustration. By the way, which I believe Satan is trying to do today. Keep you fearful. Keep you uncertain. Keep you anxious about what's coming next. Is there another variant? Variant coming? Is there? Is, what about this war here? What about this thing over here? What are we going to do? The gas prices are rising out of the ceiling. There's no food in the grocery stores. What are we going to do? Here's 
Here's the solution. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I've got it all under control. Not one thing's happening to you. Not one thing's going to come into your life that I have not designed for your good and my glory. Do not let your hearts be troubled. See, here's the, the deal is. They, they would remain in their anxiety. They would live in this, uh, this fear and frustration no matter what the glorious end awaited them. As the disciples, uh, as the, the disciples, as many saints through the ages, respond to their present circumstances in a sinful way. And that is essentially denying the Lord. Thus Jesus spoke to them this encouragement, let not your hearts be troubled. Thus in effect Jesus told his disciples what Paul admonished the sailors caught in the deadly storm. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That's why we have the scriptures. The scriptures tell us what exactly it will be told. So, as Jesus faced his darkest hour, his his heart was turned to, to comfort his trembling followers, assuring them that he was leaving to prepare a place for them. Guys, I'm going to leave you for a little while, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to prepare a place for you. To prepare a place, a home, a security, something to rest on. And it's in the Father's house. Their trust in Him was based on what He promised would enable them then to take heart and to rejoice in the difficult circumstances. In other words, what he's going to share with them in the next chapters prepares them for this. And it did. So his departure was for their benefit. He was not deserting them. He, the heavenly bridegroom, and heres I really think of the emphasis of this, although it doesn't say that specifically, we see here the picture of the heavenly bridegroom. This was traditional in the Jewish weddings. They had a betrothal ceremony. And then the, then the groom left the bride in her, father, in her father's house. And he went to his father's house to prepare a place for her. That betrothal lasted sometimes a year or more. And when the place was prepared, the bridegroom would return to the bride's house and receive the bride and take her to his house where they celebrated the wedding. Jesus is telling us the same thing. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the Father's house is a reference to the eternal state, to heaven. Jesus then 
assures the believers that there is ample provision. There are many rooms, many rooms in my Father's house. The usual understanding of this, mansions. I'm gonna, there's a mansion, even songs are written about this. There's mansions uh, prepared for us. I'm sure it will be glorious. But the term mansions, however, is, is not a good translation. It simply means a suite, a, a place, rooms where people lodge. Not necessarily a mansion as the King James Version has it. But Jesus promised in the end that he would return to receive them home. And three fulfillments uh, have been suggested here of Jesus. He says, I'm going to return. And three times he did. Once at the post-resurrection ministry for 40 days, he did come back. But he, not to take them with him, but to reassure them that he would. Then the second, the coming of the Holy Spirit promised to replace Christ during the gospel age, which he promises there in the 15th and the 16th chapters. The paraclete, the comforter. Isn't that interesting? He's called the comforter. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm giving you a comforter. The Holy Spirit, he's going to come because I purchased him at the cross for in, in that sense to come and permanently indwell my people. And then the third is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age when he will receive us in the resurrection. I'm looking forward to that day. But Jesus also then promised his disciples that he was the way. And I want to close with this because this is really important. He is the way. What? We, sometimes we look to Jesus as the supplier of things. If Jesus would just fix this, if Jesus would just give me this, if Jesus would just do this for me. If Je and that's how we kind of tend to look at him. That he came to, in order to provide for us what we need. And he, so he's the great provider. He said, I am the way. I'm going away, but you know the way. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? See, Jesus, and Peter raised his uh, concern when he says, "You know, because you, Jesus said to you, you know the way where I am going. After Peter raised the concern, Lord, uh, we, what, if you're going away, why can't we join you now? And then Thomas raised the, the point here. Lord, we don't know where you're going. Verse 5. Thomas was also concerned about how they would follow him. If they did not know where they, that he was going. And so Jesus again corrects them. Just like he corrected Mary and Martha. When they said to him, you know, Lord, if you had been here, our brother had not died. Oh, your brother's going to live again. I, we know he's going to live again in the resurrection. At that time, that future time there is somewhere in the, off in the, in the distant future. He's going to live again in the resurrection. And Jesus corrected them even then. No, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Don't look for a day in the, off in the hazy future. Look at me. And to prove it, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it's the same truth that's, that is expressed right here. Lord, we don't, where are you going? And why can't we follow you now? And we don't know how to get there. We don't, uh, uh-uh, Jesus said, stop looking at that. Look at me. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the fact is, Jesus is the way, and he's the only way. When people think there are many ways to God, and Jesus is just but one of them. No, Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. Reject me, you can't get to the Father at all. Now, this is my closing. What is the singular evidence that we have trusted him for our troubled heart. There's only one thing that evidences and marks the full trust that one has in the Lord's promise. Joy. Joy. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Paul gives us a great example of this. There in Philippians Chapter 2, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. The church sent one of its own, Epaphroditus, to minister to Paul, to assist him, and to uh, do whatever he needed. But he also became a point of great concern both to the church and to Paul when he took ill. In fact, the scripture, Paul tells us, he nearly died. Thus Paul wrote there, verses 27 to 29, But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him back to you, see, therefore that you may, what? Rejoice at seeing him, that I may be less anxious so receive him in the Lord with what? All joy. Here's the circumstances. Paul, and notice Paul's concern. Then Paul follows up this exhortation there in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It follows on the context of what he said there in the, in the end of the second chapter. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's 3.1. And then just skipping down a couple of verses, verses 4 to 7, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, we sang that, we sang rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, that's that's from this right here. That's <laughs> That's from this. Let your reasonableness be, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Huh? Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, 
by prayer and supplication. See, trust in the Lord. Trust in me. And with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes, surpasses all understanding, will guard or garrison, literally set up a perimeter around you with a guard. Your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 and verse 11. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So how do we then show that we trust in God and in His Son, Jesus? Our primary objective is for rejoicing is the Lord Himself. In Luke chapter 1, verses 47-48, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Philippians 4 again, 4 through 6, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. We must also rejoice as we face trials and difficulties. Here again, John 16. Jesus is going to tell this to them here. Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So also you have sorrow, that is affliction now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's John 16, 20 and 22. We must rejoice when we are persecuted for being Christ's followers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted the, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew seven, eleven and twelve. Fourthly, we must rejoice as we are confronted by the knowledge of our place in as we are excuse me, comforted by the knowledge of our place in heaven. Luke 10 verse 20. Jesus said to the disciples. Do not rejoice in this. That spirits are subject unto you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Is your name written in heaven? Yeah. Then rejoice. Finally. We rejoice in the truth. That we are his glorious bride. Let us rejoice and exalt and give 
him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and pure for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints do you know why brides dress up in these beautiful white gowns when they get married <laughs> that's a picture of their expectation of what they will look like when Jesus takes them to himself. Rejoice. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in the Lord. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And the evidence, rejoice. Father, thank you for this comforting message. And it is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate his resurrection this morning. And we were celebrated in this. That he said. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going away. I'm going by the cross. I'm going through death. I'm going through death's veil. I am going to be crushed. And I'm going to die. I'm going to be laid in a tomb. I'm going to be there for three days and three nights. And then I'm coming out. Alive, never to die again. Having made a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of my people so that they also, when they face death, may be resurrected, resurrected to life, eternal life. Lord, we have been given everlasting life because Jesus died and rose again. Thank you. We rejoice in that this morning. And I pray for any here who have not yet put, had their, had this truth revealed to them that they put their trust in Him. Trust in God. Trust also in Jesus. And I praise you for it in Jesus' name.